Hey Jim. Yes, Ashley. Did you know that zoonotic diseases are responsible for an estimated 2.7 million deaths worldwide each year? I didn't know that. Hey, Ashley. Yes, Jim. What does zoonotic mean? It means a disease transmitted from animals to humans, and researchers believe that the coronavirus outbreak started the same way. Hi, I'm Jim Lowe, and today we're gonna discuss the novel coronavirus, how viruses spread from animals to people. Joining me is my colleague, Ashley Mitek, who's also a veterinarian here at the University of Illinois. We're gonna talk about this novel coronavirus outbreak, how government health organizations are responding, and really what you need to know. Welcome to the Route Barn. So Jim, can you talk to us a little bit about what is a zoonotic disease and how common are they? So Ashley, when we think about zoonotic diseases, we're really talking about diseases that cross between species and specifically cross from animals into humans. And they're actually quite common. Um, and most of what we think are the major human pathogens probably started in animals. And that's just because there's a lot more animal species than there are one human species. So the most common ones we would think about are things like influenza. So influenza is, is zoonosis and what we call reverse zoonosis. And so it passes from humans to animals and back to humans in multiple species and between multiple species. So influenza is really interesting and we know that's been around a long time and we can think about not just zoonotic disease, but then what we call pandemic disease, where disease goes from animals to humans and then spreads very rapidly within humans. And that happened in 1918 with flu and it happened in 2009 with flu. But the other big virus group that tends to transmit between species is really these coronaviruses. And so we've got this COVID-19 or what the fancy name is it, right? So this is this novel coronavirus that's appeared in China. But you've heard us talk in the news or heard the news talk about you know, prior viruses that are coronaviruses. So the SARS outbreak, which was severe acute respiratory syndrome, and then this Middle East respiratory syndrome. And both of those were also coronaviruses is maybe not that different than um, this current COVID outbreak. And so these things happen quite frequently. Um, most of the time we have zoonotic disease transmission, nothing happens. They're very normal. <laughs> kind of events that doesn't work very well in the human, it doesn't spread within humans. And so when we get excited about these things, it's that we didn't just have transmission for animal to human, we had sustained transmission within humans. And that's when everybody gets excited and that's what's happened with this novel coronavirus. Is there something unique about the coronavirus in that it, I guess, can all viruses go from animal to human and human to animal and back and forth and have the zoonotic potential? Or is there something unique about coronaviruses that's making everybody get excited about the animal part of it? So most of viruses tend to be very species specific. So um, let, let's just think, uh, you work with small animals a lot. So if we think about distemper in dogs, that virus only infects dogs, it won't even infect cats and it doesn't transmit to humans because viruses have to infect a cell and then replicate inside that cell and then get out. They don't have their own mechanism to make themselves. And that's an important bid. And so viruses tend to be very species specific. We don't think about cross-species transmission. Why coronaviruses are interesting is, is that coronaviruses, and there's a huge number of coronaviruses, coronaviruses infect tremendous number of species. 
And they're also, you know, there's two types of genetic material, RNA and DNA. And RNA is single-stranded, so it has a lot more mutation errors, and so it's more easy to adapt. And so coronaviruses are RNA viruses, just like flu is an RNA virus. And there happens to be flu that infects every species in the world in, that we know of. And so when you have a virus that infects lots of different species and it's really likely to change, they're just more likely to be zoonotic. So, right, we have an African swine fever outbreak going on as well, and that's probably the biggest virus we know of. It's a DNA virus, this big chunk of genetic material. It's pretty hard for that to change because if one bit changes, it's not likely to be very successful. But these little bitty viruses that um, have a lot of air in their replication all the time are more likely to transmit, particularly when they infect a lot of species. And so that's kind of what makes coronavirus uh, an interesting bit, that there's coronaviruses that infect dogs and cats and pigs and, and cattle, and those are all separate. And then there's this big reservoir of what we think in bats. Um, and that's probably where this virus came from, although we don't know. But that's certainly where SARS came from. But there's coronaviruses that infect camels, and that's where the Middle Eastern, the MERS virus came from. So it's You've got a lot of species infected. They mutate at a high rate so they can adapt. And so a little air probably doesn't, a little air in the replication might make them successful in humans and not in bats. And so, yeah, that's what makes coronavirus kind of special. One of the things they've talked about in the media is that this virus's potential to kill somebody and its ability to be, is the right word, very virulent. Virulent, yeah. Um, and is that a reflection of the fact that it can shift in and do mutations as it goes from species to species? Because I guess not all, we have millions of viruses right in the world and not all of them are going to kill us. But it seems like this this one is is a little bit concerning because it does have a higher mortality rate. So I guess it's the fact that it can go to different animals make it more virulent in and of itself. So there, there's two things when we think about zoonosis that scares people when it becomes what we would call host adapted, right? It can now replicate in a new species. One of those is there's no background immunity. So when we think about infectious disease, right, we're always thinking about the contact between infecteds and susceptibles and and then what populate part of the population is resistant. So there's only those three bits in any population. Infected things and, and susceptible things that could be infected are those that have been infected and are now resistant. So when you have a novel disease introduced or a novel agent introduced, pathogen introduced, there's no resistant population. So everybody's susceptible. So that makes it move fairly quickly. And then the other thing that becomes a challenge is, right, like if it can cross and it becomes host adapted enough to move from one species to another, they tend to be more aggressive, they replicate. So when we think about viruses that are um, more severe, more lethal, they replicate very quickly. So they kill more cells, fat, they infect and kill more cells. So the basic mechanism of viruses and infects a cell, replicates inside the cell and then kills the cell to release itself. And that's kind of the basic method of mechanism of pathology. And, and so the viruses that are, hey, it's new, it can spread rapidly, and the only way it does that is to kill a lot of cells. So you tend to see those things to be more virulent, at least initially. And then they tend, as they get more adapted to human beings, they tend to resolve their um, uh, level of virulence down to something that's more sustainable. So I think when these things cross, we think about them tending to be very virulent. Now, what I find interesting about this COVID-19 is that it's actually not very virulent. So the case fatality rate, so those that die of those that are infected, is somewhere in the 1% range we, outside of China. That's the most recent estimate. So maybe it's a little higher, a little lower, but the point is it's quite low. In flu is like 0.002 or something. So it's 0.2% or 0.2 hundredths of a percent. But 
flu's been around for a long time, and flu infects a lot of people, and so, right, it's 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 higher than flu, but it's not like if you get coronavirus, you're going to die. I mean, 1% of the sure, people are yeah. going to die. The other thing is, as we think about this, that's probably going to reduce over time. And if we look at compared to SARS, the case fatality rate, I think, was something like, don't call me, but 10% or something, right? So it was it was a lot higher. So, you know, if you, if you got infected, you were relatively likely to die. But that virus didn't transmit very well. It died out fairly quickly. So I think why everybody's scared about this one is, yes, there's some deaths. And, and those aren't to be taken lightly, but we're in the thousand deaths range at this point. Um, relative to the total number of cases, it's quite low. Um, so this one is more likely to spread very widely because we have a lot of people who are infected and not sick. Why do you say the death rate is going to decrease over time? Why do you think it's so going to start some, to go down? That's some fascinating work by Paul Ewald that was really um, uh, looking at dysentery in people. Um, and so they worked out this hypothesis, which they've, you know, it's always tough to prove that it's true, but you know, they worked down, there's certainly strong evidence that it is, that when a pathogen is really, really virulent, virulence means that it's consuming host resources very quickly. So it's using up the host. So a pathogen, right, can't live without the host, and so it's, it's consuming the host resources. And so if I'm a pathogen, and the whole theory of evolution is to pass your genes on to the next generation. So if I'm a pathogen, or I'm a bacteria, I'm a virus, that means I don't have to pass them just to the next generation, I have to pass them to the next host. So if I'm going to consume host resources, i.e. have high virulence very quickly and disable my host, I have to have a high rate of spread. Conversely, if I consume my host resources very slowly, i.e. I'm infectious for a long time, the host is and potential to spread is longer, then I don't have to spread as quickly. So there's been some strategies saying, oh, we can reduce the severity of disease, and they did that with dysentery by saying, listen, let's just block water, contaminated water. And so dysentery went from high virulence to low virulence because it couldn't kill people quickly and be transmitted in water. Um, and so that generally works with all, all of these pathogens is we um, have pathogens which are lower virulence, they shed longer, and they're more likely to be transmitted and that also means that low virulence is preferred from passing yourself to the next host. So now, viruses are a little smart. Yeah, it's evolution, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm fascinated with infectious disease because it's evolution on steroids, right? So we can talk about, oh, what are we doing to genetics and what can we do to shift and select, right? I mean, I've grown up in agriculture and we've tried to select the right pig or the right calf. But that's over, you know, even a pig is over a year generation interval and humans are on a 20 year generation interval, right? And so thinking about oh, how do we change things, you know, a, a virus is on an hours generation interval, a bacteria is on hours. And so they change generations very quickly. And so you can shift evolution either for or against what you need. And so if you look at the efforts that the public health community has made with this virus, what they're really trying to do is stop transmission. Now, have they been successful? Absolutely not. Because we've continued to cases, right? I mean, we've got cases in Europe, and we've got cases in Iran, and we have blah, 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 blah. But what they have done is, is slow the transmission, which is therefore selecting the viral population for actually lower virulence organisms, if you follow Ewald's hypothesis. And so the strategy hasn't stopped it, hasn't made it go away, but it's selecting for these what are probably non-apparent infections. 
it's becoming the common cold and that's great as opposed to some superbug that's going to kill us. So on that note, with containing the virus, um, we typically have seen situations in the past where uh, one of the things that the public health community and, and medical community resort to is creating a vaccine. Um, and can you talk a little bit about if you think there's a vaccine in the future for this um, and other strategies to, to contain the virus? So that gets back to this SIR triangle, right? So the population is susceptible, infected, or resistant. And so one of the core tools of infectious disease has been vaccines. So I can increase the number of resistant in the population, those that aren't eligible to be infected, which means if I just think about if I've got a percentage that's infected and they're gonna, and you've got 90% resistant and 10% infected, the probability of an infected person bumping in or an infected animal bumping into an, a, a, a susceptible one is one out of 10. And if it's the other way around, if it's only 10% resistant and 90% susceptible, it's nine out of 10 I'm gonna bump. So I would have transmission. So the idea of vaccines is how do I shift um, the population to being more resistant. So will we have a vaccine for this? Absolutely. Will it work is another question. Okay, how quickly do you think they can, how quickly can you recognize a virus and then give it to somebody who can make a vaccine and they make a vaccine that has a reasonable chance of, of working? I mean, best case scenario is, is 18 months. Realistically, it's probably three to five years. And, and there's a couple of reasons. One, coronaviruses are, as we talked about in the beginning, they're itty bitty viruses and they mutate. So there'll be a fair amount of genetic variation. So I have to get the right virus or the right viruses in the vaccine to get the right immunity. So as you said, viruses are smart. So if I build immunity to virus one or type strain one, and strain two's there, strain two will emerge when there's more resistance to strain, strain one. So we'll have to work out the bits of which strains do we need. And that's the challenge with flu vaccine. You hear them talk about, well, flu vaccine didn't work very well this year because they picked the wrong strains because there's lots of strains of the virus. The same will be true with these coronaviruses. And so they'll have to get the right strain and kind of sort out what they're going to do. It's, it's not as complicated as flu, but it'll be, there'll be a fair amount of work on that. And then the bigger bit is, right, the first rule of medicine is do no harm, whether that's human medicine or, or or animal medicine. And so there's just a lot of safety testing is required because you don't want to put a vaccine out there that actually hurts people and they'll be killed. So it won't make people sick, but you know, we don't know what happens when you put it with an adjuvant. And I mean, there are a lot of smart people that are working on this and they're working very hard and they have some very good estimates and that's way out of my league about, I don't do vaccine development. So they'll know what's going on, but it still doesn't mean that I don't have to do all the safety steps, et cetera, et cetera. And then once I get the safety testing done, then I have to go do the efficacy testing. And so it's just not a fast process. And we don't want it to be a fast process. No, sure. We, we don't want to screw it up. And so, yeah, we'll have a vaccine. I don't know when we'll have it. So in the media, they've talked a lot about pandemics and endemics. Can you talk a little bit about if this new coronavirus is, is going to reach those levels and what those terms mean? Those are big, fancy science words that... Um, I'm not sure any of us really know what they mean, but but the, the definition of a pandemic is defined by the World Health Organization, who the people who do this is sustained transmission on multiple continents. They don't believe we're at pandemic. They don't believe it's met the criteria yet. And so we'll let them make that call because that's their job. Um, is there transmission on multiple continents? Absolutely. 
Um, but it's not huge. It's not really transmitting broadly. I mean, there's an outbreak. There's a cluster in, in Italy right now, and there's a cluster in Iran, and there's probably some other clusters that are going to happen in Spain based upon some travel to Italy. And we've seen cases now in um, in Brazil, and there's maybe some reports to sustain some transmission that's not associated with travel in, in China, so in the U.S. But so certainly, yeah, there's a lot of transmission going on, but pandemic is a word that obviously has a lot of connotations in the media that would say this is awful and terrible. Is it transmitting everywhere? Yes. The other word you used is endemic, which means that that disease is here and it's not going away. There's sustained transmission of that. I think there's every evidence today that that's what's happened. It's become endemic. It's going to be endemic. We're not going to stomp this out. But as we chatted about a little earlier, right, the heroic efforts that have really been undertaken by health authorities with quarantine and, and some of that stuff sounded not very good in the media, right? Like we've locked up cruise ships and yada, yada, yada. But those things that have gone on in China and, and then really their efforts to try to contain that and then what's happened in these other outbreak centers, I think everybody in, up front knew that stomping it out was going to be really hard. It's, it's really hard to control the disease when there's three, four, five million people in one spot animals, whatever it is, right? You get that many things that could be infected in one spot that controlling that or stomping it out is almost impossible. But forcing it to be endemic and not epidemic or pandemic. So epidemic means it's it's spreading very rapidly. And this is clearly epidemic and pandemic, you know, means that it's broader than that. But forcing it to endemic instead of really pandemic is, a, is their goal, I think, in this. And the, I think those efforts have largely been successful. I mean, we've got transmission but the transmission generally is mild and, and the vast majority of people infected probably don't even have signs. And so we've reported several tens of thousands of cases now. That's probably a gross underestimate of the number of infected people because we know we now have people who are infected and don't have clinical signs at all. They test positive, but they're not clinically diseased. So the host isn't sick. The person isn't sick. And so we know the number of infections is grossly underestimated. Um, and so that's good because that's right. That's the we're turning this into the common cold. And if that's what happens, that's okay. That's not a crisis. Jim, it's really interesting that you mentioned that somebody can be exposed to the virus and test essentially positive for it, or we can detect in their bloodstream that they were exposed to it, but yet they may not be sick from it, or they may not be clinical from for the virus just yet. So can you can you talk about what exactly is going on? in that time period and what that means. Oh, now you get me on some long-term rant because <laughs> this is a long-term passion that I have. <laughs> okay. but, but it's a really critical point. So when we think about infectious disease, we mean disease in the, in the host, and in, in this case, the person. You know, I tend to think about animals, but, but in this case, the person. Um, and so what that really means is, is that a pathogen has infected the host and then the host responded to that and probably couldn't control the infection. That's when we get disease. So we can have infection without disease. And that's a really important bit to understand when we think about that. So as, as medical people, right, we tend to see things that are sick, but you can be sick and infected, or you can be infected and not be sick. And so you could also be sick and not infected, right? Because it could be something else. And so um, when we think about that, it's, it's really if the host, the, the person sees the COVID-19 
and their immune system says, I got this, and they clear it, they can be infected and never have disease. And that's actually what happens every day of the week. Can those people still spread it? Absolutely. They're infectious, but not diseased. And we do that with a common cold. So, right, at our house now, my wife is sick, has the cold, and I probably had a runny nose for 24 hours. So now I'm going to get it because I'm sitting next to you. No, I mean, I'm perfectly healthy. I'm not shedding because I cleared it up, right? And so we think about that all the time, right? You've got little kids, right? They, They may get sick and you don't get sick. You were probably infected, but your immune system saw it and said, got it, get rid of it. So what makes an individual, whether a human or animal, be able to clear it versus somebody who gets exposed to it and becomes actually clinically ill? That's a really complicated question. Let's try to sum that up in a little bit, that there's kind of two parts to your immune system, the innate and the adaptive. And the adaptive is specific, so it's specific for a specific disease. But that happens when this first part of the immune system or the innate immune system doesn't work. So every day we are exposed to billions of bacteria and viruses, like just walking around. Every time we breathe air in, there's, there's bacteria and viruses that we inhale. And our nat- body's natural defenses, this innate immune system, sees those things as, nope, not me, and kicks them out. And so, right, growing up, your mom probably told you, don't go outside without a hat on your head when it's cold, right? Or bundle up when it's cold. Well, that's because they're saying, ah, if you're stressed, if you're cold stressed, that innate immune response doesn't work as well. And so if you're a little bit stressed today and you get exposed to the virus, whether that's cold stress or emotional stress or you're just tired, you didn't sleep enough, that innate immune system may not work as well. And now bingo, bango, bongo, that exposure causes you to get sick, get diseased. And if I slept normally and ate and wasn't stressed and wore my hat outside, you know, bald head, you got to wear a hat all the time. But um in the it's a bugger. It's a real burden on society because if I don't have a hat on, it's either sunburn or freezing. So, so. is there is a future study that bald guys are more likely to get it's a viral disease? Bald guys that refuse to wear hats. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one of the conversations. But right, it's the stress thing, right? And so I'm not if I'm not as stressed, my immune system sees it and says, "Boop, no big deal." And so it's that kind of balance, right? And certainly every human being going through every day has varying levels of stress and what's going on and how much sleep did you get in how good was the meals yesterday and you know those things. So when we think about this shedding, you really worry about it shedding in, in, in stressed environments. And so in, in, in our livestock world, that means ah, I didn't do a good job taking care of things, but we think about, ah, I put people in an airport. Well, I don't care what you say. There's, some, there's contact in an airport, but there's also some stress. Like I'm getting put on this plane and I'm, you know, you, all this stuff goes on and that also lowers my, my stress and so, or that lowers my immune response. So why you get infected or don't get infected is a really complicated answer. But the easiest way to say is if I do things that lower my innate immunity, which fluctuates minute by minute throughout the day, then I'm more likely to get infected. That's really interesting. Well, thanks for joining us. Well, and thanks for joining us, Ashley. We should do this again. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Round Barn, and we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at TheRoundBarn1, or you can email us at TheRoundBarn at vetmed.illinois.edu. We may even share your comments on the next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. And one last thing. 
We offer a wide range of learning opportunities. Some might call it a multimedia empire in livestock management. You can learn more about that at onlinevetmed.illinois.edu. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.